Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 183 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So happy 2023, Matthew. I'm ready for this year. Yeah, I think a lot of people are. I think a lot of people are. So uh, getting the year started off on the right foot, at least so far. Yesterday was a was a good day, but yep. um, but we'll, we'll talk about uh, the Santa Claus rally and if that showed up or not here in a little bit. But uh, I'm sure viewers are wondering what the full year calendar returns were for 2022. So we'll start with that. Let's go through it. S&P 500 index uh, down 19.4% for 2022. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 8.8%. NASDAQ Composite Index down 33.1%. Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 21.6%. And the Vanguard All World X United States down 18.2%, uh, three-month treasury rate sitting at 4.55%, two-year treasury rate at 4.36%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 3.69%. And as always, all this data is from stock chart. So worst year, I believe, since 08 oh, yeah. for it, the S&P 500. It, and it felt like it. Yeah, it did. It, it felt did. like it. I mean, it was just a year where you were swimming against the current the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't really any positives to come out of the market in 2022, in my opinion. You know, I was in a uh, I was in a client meeting yesterday, and one of the things I mentioned to the client is, you know, it, it's still, you know, they asked me, you know, summarize 2022 in in a sentence, and I said it was a year where the market was talking out of both sides of its mouth. The fundamentals were good. But the, the price action was telling a different story and forecasting a future that was not very bright. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of still in that mode going in 23 where the fundamentals aren't horrible by any means that reflect these stock prices. And at some point, one of the two have to be right. Yeah. And you're going to, I mean, like I said, it was the worst year for the S&P 500 since 2008. And, you know, I think for the past couple of years, everyone has been, you know, kind of walking on eggshells like, hey, when's the next shoe going to drop? Because we haven't had a pretty good sell off in quite some time, at least for a calendar year. So, I mean, at least it like puked and hopefully got out of its system. Right? Remember that time where everyone was like, the market just goes up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait to buy. Right. And then all of a sudden you get a really, really good correction and no one wants it. All right. It's just human nature. I it's going to continue to happen. I know. Uh, so speaking of that, um, we mentioned the S&P 500 was down 19.4% uh, in 2022, but the CPI inflation adjusted S&P 500 was down about 25%. That's an interesting stat right there. According to Callum Thomas. So that we would call that like a like real return. That's right? an interesting stat right there. So it just adds in inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he also noted the S&P 500 bond index was down 18% in 2022. So, I mean, that, that, that's the other story. If people that, think, I mean, on a historical level and on a relative basis, if people think stocks had a bad year, bonds 
just got slapped. It was like, it was historic. It was like um, like a once in a century type of year for bonds. Oh my when gosh. You look at the numbers. It was, yeah, it was brutal. I brutal. mean, worst returns in history in, in some of these indexes. So, yep. um, yeah, interesting to see uh, what will happen. And we always, and we talked about, you know, how uncommon it is for equities to be down year over year. It's even more uncommon for bond indices to be down in consecutive years too. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, December jobs report is due out on the 6th, so that will be tomorrow, which is Friday morning. The current consensus estimate, uh, according to Bloomberg, is gaining 200,000 jobs, and the previous figure for November came in at plus 263,000. So again, reason why we're talking about this is uh, obviously the Fed wants to see softness in the labor market to, to also... Um, you know, go behind their theory that raising interest rates is working yep. uh, and that, you know, the job market has been resilient and hasn't really come in yet, I heard which sounds weird, I know. I heard but. a very interesting theory on the jolts, which is the job openings, the amount of job openings we have. Over the weekend, I heard this theory that a lot of companies right now aren't necessarily hiring as much as they're advertising, that they're trying to fill their log with qualified candidates and that you know we don't have nine or 10 million job openings, we really have maybe half that. And that companies are just trying to sit there and say, well, when we kind of come out of this economic downturn, I'm gonna have my people lined up that I'm gonna hire. And that was one economist's viewpoint that really we re we're not as strong of a job market as, as the jolts seems. would indicate. Yeah, what's your, what's your two cents on that? I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I think, there's a bunch of different ways that you can look at it. And like, for example, we subscribe to Y charts and there's a million different ways you can look at the job market. And yeah. I'm sure if you look at them right now, half of them say it's really, really strong and half of them say, eh, it's really not as strong as it looks. Um, I think for most companies, the right candidate comes along, they're going to nab them. Yeah, I think so too. I think that, but yeah, that, that, that's my two cents. Yeah, that's just the, the way it is. Yep. Um, yep. So it's going to be interesting to see that if these companies do line up all these people to, you know, once the recession hits and once we're back into what I would call a quote unquote normal environment, mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting to see if we have this pool of candidates, but if those candidates still have the upper hand and the ability to go other places and be like, hey, Amazon's offering me a job for XYZ amount and they go to another company and it's like, can you match it or raise it or give me increased benefits and see how many people are going to be leaving when I'm not they've seeing, committed. I'm not feeling that environment in 23. I'm yeah. not feeling that environment in 23. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, CPI data for December is due out on the 12th, so that's next Thursday. That's important. Yeah, um, and the consensus is a month-over-month -month gain of 0.1% and a year-over-year -year gain of 6.7%. If it continues at these month-over-month like -month gains of these low amounts, it's going to absolutely, the year-over-year -year is going to collapse yeah. in the spring. Collapse. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely headed in the right direction. I mean, if we get to April and the year-over-year -year change is like 4%, how does, that, how does that change the narrative in the market? Yeah. I mean, I think it's estimated at this point that the Fed's going to raise through February and yep. then stop Just at that pause. point. So um, I think with that being their you know, terminal, their last forecasted rate hike, it's going to be interesting to see what the numbers come in for February to see if they change course. Yeah. And in, in either direction, right? If yeah. they're like, oh, no, we got to keep going. Or yeah. if they're like, 
ah, instead of just stopping, we might cut. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, uh, Santa Claus showed up this year, Matthew. Um, this was a tweet from Ryan Dietrich yesterday on the 4th. Uh, he said it's official. Santa Claus came to town for a seventh year in the row. Not all that surprising as these are some of the strongest days of the year. The bigger worry would have been if it failed to show. Nice job, Santa. We'll have Jenna throw this chart up on the YouTube video in the show notes. It just shows, uh, you know, years in which the last five trading days of the year and the first trading two trading days of the new year uh, have been positive for the majority and it just goes to show what the forward calendar years have been uh, and typically on average pretty strong but there are outliers outliers we've seen that before so uh, the recent most recent one uh, was it looks like in 2015 nope I'm reading this chart wrong. 20, 14, 20, 2014. 2014. So not saying that, you know, we bet all of our chips on, on this, but again, just adding to the theme of, you know, from a seasonal standpoint, this year tends to be really strong. Santa Claus rally adds to that fact. Lower valuations coming into the year than last year. Strong consumer. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, things pointing in the right direction, at least to start off the year. The other point I want to throw out there, talk about earnings. <clears throat> you know, the last two earnings quarters, if you think about how the market performed the middle of October through the end of November, you think about how the market performed in uh, July through the first half of August, earnings tend to be a catalyst for the market. And it's shocking. Why? The fundamentals aren't that bad. And so all of a sudden, these companies report and people are like, well, wait a minute, you know, these companies are pretty cheap. Right. Well, it, it will happen in, in January. Who knows? But if history repeats itself, this will be three in a row. Yeah. And speaking of that, we're going to be creeping up uh, on earnings season, which is right around the corner. So keep everybody updated with that. Uh, tweets, articles, and research from the week. First thing I had was an article from Ruben Miller titled My 2023 Prediction. So as promised on last week's episode, I wanted to share this article I read uh, Regarding the predictions for 2023. This should be good. So he says, annual investment forecasts are junk, and everyday investors are worse off for paying attention. Yet each December, without fail, Wall Street analysts become short-term prognosticators providing detailed market predictions for the upcoming year. Granted, these analysts are typically quite thoughtful and intelligent. They have fancy MBAs, PhDs, <laughs> and CFA charters. They have expensive Bloomberg terminals providing millions of market data points, computer spring computer screens displaying complex charts and neon squiggly line analytics <laughs> and proprietary forecasting models with thousands of economic variable inputs. But none of this changes the way that today's prices become tomorrow's prices or the prices at the end of 2023. And again, I don't, I'm, this isn't meant to take away from those people that do this. They are all way smarter than me and you, but I just really trying to drive home this point that, over a short-term basis, and I consider what one-year time horizon very short-term in the market, Yep, that it is extremely hard, if not impossible, to predict what is going to happen. Well, I got something that might be controversial, but if, you know, really smart people were good at the market, then professors would be managing money, and they're not. Right. There's a difference between academia world and real life. Well, yeah, and then if these people were right all of the time, they wouldn't be wasting their time spewing out their projections they'd be 
like I always say, sitting on a beach, just drinking a cocktail. their returns. Yeah. Um, so he says, uh, like nearly uh, every other documented year, 2022 stock analyst forecast has turned out to be abysmal with the average prediction having a 30% deviation from what actually occurred. 30%. 30% off. Short-term stock market predictions are just guesses, potentially educated guesses with regards to economic models, but uneducated and that they overlook how short-term returns get realized, which is predominantly by unexpected returns. One year is a very short time period. Um, so, again, you know what I started seeing over this past week? People throwing out, um, it's the... Um, the sell side, they're given like stock market um, uh, buy sell ratings on stocks and they usually have price targets. I'm starting to see firms just say it's a market hold without a price target. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to see that now. Where yeah, usually I mean, it's, it's a, it, XYZ stock is a hold or a buy and it's associated with a price target. Now you're just seeing it's a hold. Yeah, because I mean, you can run, so the way that analysts typically, you know, go about projecting stock prices is what they use what's called the discounted cash flow model which takes into account earnings projections uh inflation rate risk-free rate all that stuff right um but what that doesn't account for is shocks to the system like covid like 2008 yep um that that doesn't get accounted for in the dcf model right so Again, I'm not a huge fan of using them for that. Yeah, it's just interesting how you're starting to see that now. Yeah. Uh, Second thing I had was a tweet from Cameron Dawson on December 29th. And she said, despite terrible investor sentiment, individual investors were slow to reduce holdings and equities. Allocations to equities are off the highs down from about 70% to 62%, but remain well above prior major bear market lows. So equity allocations fell to 45 to 50% in 2001 and 2009. And we'll have Jenna throw this up on, on the show notes and the YouTube page. And this was a comment from the chart report on, on uh, Cameron's tweet. This chart emphasizes the disparity between how investors feel and how they're actually positioned. The blue line represents the bull bear spread from the AAII sentiment survey, And this was the most bearish year in the history of the AAII sentiment survey, with the bull bear spread spending a record 39 consecutive weeks in negative territory. While investors might say they're bearish, they hardly reduced their exposure to stocks this year. As Cameron points out, equity exposure fell from 70% to 62%, which is still elevated within historical ranges and well above levels where previous bear markets have bottomed. Watch what they do, not what they say. Yep. Again, I've talked about this several times before. People can feel a certain way, right. but it's really about what they're doing, right? And we yep. talked about this in relation to professional money managers out there, like the Warren Buffetts of the world and the Stanley Drunken Millers of the world and Bill Ackman's of the world. They can you know, pontificate on these media outlets as much as they want, but I mean, that doesn't really matter to me. I'd rather just get an inside look on what they're doing with their portfolio. Absolutely. So last thing I had was an interesting one. This might, uh, I don't think it's going to rile you up too much, but it was a tweet (laughs) from Day Hagen Asset Management. And they say, once a company becomes the highest cap stock in the S&P 500, 
does it pay to own it rather than the S&P 500 index itself? This NDR research, which is Ned Davis research, analyst shows the answer since 1972 is no. It paid more than 8.3 times more to own the index rather than the highest cap stock. Diversification pays. So what this shows, Matt, and you can see it, YouTube viewers, on the screen right now, is that it shows the last several largest market cap stocks in relation to the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. And it shows that, you know, owning the index itself rather than owning just the largest cap stock has performed better. Now, this isn't very practical because I don't think anyone in their right mind would just either hold the index or 100% of their money in one stock. And I'm not advocating for that. And yep. I'm not advocating for Apple or against Apple. It just research shows that, you know, at one time when AT&T, Alphabet, uh, Altria, ExxonMobil, Cisco, uh, Walmart were all the, the king of the hill, uh, forward returns tend on average not to be as good as leading up to them becoming the largest cap uh, stock in the S&P 500. So again, not a re recommendation for or against. I just found it was really interesting that, you know, once these stocks reach such a, a large level, it kind of makes sense that they're not going to be outperforming as much as they have in the past because of the size of the company, right? Yeah. And they're not growing as fast. And you can kind of think of it um, like a mutual fund, right? When a mutual fund gets all these inflows and becomes super, super big, sometimes it doesn't, you know, tend to perform the best going forward over the next five or 10 years. So just thought that this was an interesting stat. It is um, interesting. And see how Apple handles this going forward. I remember the back in the late 90s, the hottest fund was something called the Munder Net Net Fund, okay? And it was obviously a technology internet-based fund. And leading to the first quarter of 2000, the fund was getting so big, they were gonna close to new money. Mm -hmm. And I remember everyone rushing to the doors in the first quarter of 2000, trying to get into this fund before it closed. And what do you think happened afterwards? Blew up. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, one of my favorite books that I've read was the uh, Man Who Solved the Market book about Jim Simons. And he has a, a money management firm, right? And it's all, you know, uh, model-based and systematic-based run by computers. But he has a fund that has just blasted the S&P <laughs> 500 on average year in and year out. And the cool thing about it is that the fund that does so well is only open to employees of the money management fund. I've heard about this. Because the system doesn't work or as it, well it, when you have more money. Yeah. It needs to be like a certain dollar amount, right? Yeah. And I've it's funny because all these people compare the, the returns of, this is called the medallion fund, to their other public funds where outside investors are able to invest and you know the medallion fund just blows these out of the water but it really does make sense because some of these strategies that people use doesn't work with a billion dollars when it works with 200 million dollars that's right so i've heard about this interesting yeah. uh I'll turn it over to you all right first thing i got is some data from bespoke investment group our regular listeners know i love bespoke because what they do is they bring raw data to light, right? So the first thing I got is bespoke research from December 30th. 
in the six years that followed a 20% decline, the S&P 500's median performance the following year was a gain of 24% with positive returns two-thirds of the time. The only down years that followed a 20% decline mark 1931 and 1932, right? Now, 2022 was a painfully consistent year to the downside. You know it's a bad year when more than half of the months, seven months, experienced a decline of at least two and a half percent. Take that in for a second, okay? Not only that, but five of those months experienced declines of at least 5%. Now, Jenna's gonna put up a chart for our YouTube viewers for our traditional podcast listeners, this will be in our show notes. This chart's gonna show that only two other years in S&P's history, again, 31 and 37, it followed where there's a negative year following this. So you're gonna see the data that kind of justifies what I just mentioned. Now next, 2022 has also been notable for the fact there's been a near historic number of trading days with declines of at least 1% for that day. The current five-day trading format of the NYSE has been in place since 1952. So the charts to the right, which uh, Jenna's gonna put up next here, maybe in our show notes, only go back to 1952. 2022 ranked as the fourth highest total number of 1% daily declines in the last 70 years. Take that in, Mark. That's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. The only years with a higher frequency of more 1% plus declines, 2008, 2002, 74. Pretty crazy. Yeah, and it's um, interesting because, I mean, one would look at these numbers and would say volatility was really high this year, depending on how you measure volatility. Um, but we have we didn't have like a blowout volatility event. Usually we get like a, you know, like a, a six or seven percent down day or five percent down day. I call the, it puke. The VIX, I mean, the market the VIX spikes to forty yeah. or fifty or something, and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But it was orderly. We still had several, you know, one percent down days this year, and I would say that you know at least relative to the last couple of years it's been way more volatile than it has been so yeah and in the bottom portion of that last chart you know the years that followed such poorness in the market you know you've seen the S&P's median performance the next year over 18 percent with positive returns two-thirds of the time pretty interesting huh mm-hmm. raw data all right my next thing is should we compare and this is this might be controversial I want to see what you have to say about this. Should we compare inflation to the 1940s or the 1970s, Mark? So this is a piece of research from Game of Trades on uh, January 2nd, very fresh. Uh, Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. And this is definitely a chart I feel very strongly that our uh, traditional podcast listeners should look at our show notes. It goes back to the 1920s and it overlays CPI, the Consumer Price Index Inflation. And the thing that's interesting about this is people are trying to provide a lot of analogies to, well, it's the 70s all over again. Inflation's going to become entrenched, Mark, and it's not going to go away. Okay? When you look at this chart, the um, 
argument that this research firm is making is that in the 70s, inflation was building up for years. And if you look at it, you had inflation for multiple years over 5%. Okay, it wasn't like it spiked and then stayed. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the 40s, it spiked, came right back down. And the argument that I want to throw out there is, do you think it is realistic for a lot of people to provide analogies to the 70s when it was building up for multiple, multiple years and we were in a high inflationary environment that stuck? What's your initial response when you see this chart? Yeah, I think to start, it's hard to compare to years that were so long ago because so much has changed right with with our economy especially so i think you know comparing back to the 70s into the 40s is is tough as it is um but you know obviously this looks like an environment a lot more like the 40s uh when inflation you know skyrocketed really quick and came back down really quick relative to to the 70s um but we're not gonna we're not going to know, know this that. for several years, yeah, right? Be, this might be this might be a buildup for all we know, right? Could be. It could be, could be the but beginning. In the beginning, but uh, you know, on the basis of the chart, it looks more similar to the '40s, where it was up and down, um, and then up a lot again. So in the early, this was like 1941 inflation peaked, and then we had another huge spike in 1947, 48. It looks like Matt. Yep. Um, but. It's, it's hard. It's hard to compare back to times that were so long ago where so much has changed, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you also had a um, big energy crisis in the 70s. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's the other thing, too, is people can look at this chart and be like, oh, it's going to play out exactly like 1940. But it's like, well, that's hard to say because not everything that happened in 1940 in the 1940s to our economy is happening today. So it's exactly. hard, right? Exactly. So I look at this and my, my two cents is this is not the 70s over again. Mm-hmm. It's just, again, you know, that, that, that could be a, a wrong assessment in, in hindsight. But in my two cents, you know, I do think that you're going to continue to see inflation come in. We'll see if I'm right over the coming six to 12 months. My last piece is from Ben Carlson in his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. The blog title, Mark, was 2022 was one of the worst years ever for the markets on January 2nd. Jenna will put up this chart for our traditional YouTube viewers and then our podcast listeners. You can get this in our show notes. It goes and it shows the worst years ever for the U.S. stock market, and it shows the S&P 500, and it shows the year. It shows the performance of the S&P, Mark. And it shows, quote unquote, the reason. And lo and behold, 2022 is in the top 10. And it's just interesting because when I look at some of these other times, you know, I lived through 2002, obviously. I lived through 2008. And these are the way that the fundamentals seem to me. They are not relatable to those two years. So, you know, the fundamental side of me is like, this is crazy XYZ stock is off this much. But obviously, people are very concerned and pricing in a lot of uncertainty right now, Mm -hmm. right? 
So this is what Ben said. This past year's loss of 18.1% was- I just want to just jump in there really quick, Matt. So we said at the beginning of the podcast that S&P 500 was down 19.4% and and Ben's, he's using 18.1%. And I know that Ben uses Y charts too, but when you see the difference, it's usually because people are using um, total return, which includes dividends and just a price return. So just a price return, down about 19.4%, but on uh, a total return because of the dividends down 18.1%. Thank you for specifying that. I appreciate that. So this past year's loss of 18.1% was the seventh worst loss since the 1920s. The bond market also had one of its worst years in history, as you noted earlier, Mark. There's no sugarcoating it. If you had money invested in the financial markets in 2022, it was a tough year, possibly one of the worst we will ever see as investors. I try to look at losses like this as sunk cost. They already happened. You can't go back and change things now. All that matters is what happens from here, not what happened in the past. The beatings couldn't continue until morale improves. <laughs> I got a good laugh about that when I read this originally. <laughs> There's nothing that says markets will all of a sudden get better just because it's a new year. If you're the type of person that likes to look for silver linings and things, there's some good news out there for investors going forward. The losses from 2022 have added yield to your portfolio. The global stock market is now sporting a dividend yield of around 2.2%. Yields for short to intermediate term bonds are now in the four to 5% range. That's good enough for a yield of more than 3% for a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds. Coming into 2022, the yield was more like one and a half percent mark. You know this. Going into 2021, it was closer to one. Losses are no fun. But down markets lead to higher dividend yields, more bond income, and lower valuations. Expected returns are now higher, Ben says. I don't have the ability to predict the timing or magnitude of those higher expected returns, but there is now a much bigger cushion for investors than there has been in years as far as yields are concerned. The other good news, and every time we've ever had bad times in the past, they turned out to be wonderful opportunities for long-term investors. You were noting a time period of a year in the stock market is very short-term. There are no guarantees, but things should be better for investors in the future as long as you have enough patience and perspective. Mm -hmm. Words of wisdom from Ben Carlson. Yeah, and I think there's two things there. So number one, when he was talking about you know, there's nothing that says markets will all of a sudden get better just because of it's a new year. That's really true. And for, you know, we as humans uh, use a new year as like a restart, like a fresh restart, which is fine, right? Yep. But it doesn't mean that like things from 2022 aren't going to still spill over into 2023, right? Yep. Um, And the same same goes for like, uh, you know, benchmarking performance. Everyone goes from, you know, January 1st to December 31st. And it's like, we just pluck that out to compare like performance, right? And it's just, it's a weird way of doing it in my opinion. Um, Number two um, is that, I'm gonna say it again, people, who have a long time horizon, I'm not saying should be rooting for the market to fail, but should be ecstatic about the opportunity to buy in at lower prices. Yeah. Right. So people in their twenties, thirties, forties, even fifties, in my opinion, should be like, yeah, I still, you know, I got 
five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years left. And for my 401k, this is great. I'm, yeah. I've been I've been buying in every two weeks at lower prices this whole entire year. Yep. Right. And statistically speaking, the forward-looking returns after such poor years, and I've had countless data points from Bespoke over the past three, four months, tend to be higher than average. Yeah. And I, I listened to Ben's podcast earlier this week, and he said that, and I love this. He said he looks at his um, portfolio once per year. And that's at the, the beginning of every year. Um, and he said, you know, looking back at his year, the market was down significantly and so was his 401k, but he increased his savings rate over the course of 2022, which helped blunt a lot of the uh, downside. downside in the 401k. Yeah. So, you know, if you're someone that has a 401k, I would encourage you to look at that and be like, hey... Let's take out my contributions and see where I would have been. And I guarantee it would have been significantly lower. So, you know, having that increased savings rate or that automatic increase of one, two, three, four percent to your 401k every single year yep. will help you blunt portfolio losses uh, and help that account recover quicker because you're throwing money in every two weeks when the market's down. Well said. So. Well, I'll leave it there for the week uh, for me. I'll bring Taylor in to chat about the financial planning topic of the week for you. Um, but uh, I think next week we're doing a special podcast on Secure Act 2.0. So um, be on the lookout for that. Yeah, there's a, uh, a lot, lot, of, lot of changes, a lot of meat in there. And that's going to be uh, that's going to be uh, quarterbacked by Taylor and Aaron yeah. uh, of the firm. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting. I'm, I mean, there's still things I don't know that that are in there. So um, I'm interesting yeah. to see what comes out of that. All right. So thank you, Mark. So next up is the financial planning topic of the week. Um, Taylor Ledbetter is going to lead off this portion of the podcast. Uh, welcome, Taylor. Good to be back. So what have you have on on uh, teed up for our listeners and viewers this week? Yeah, so I read an article on the Business Insider, and it's called Deciding Whether to Pay Off Debt or Save for Retirement. It's How often do you get the, We get this question a lot, don't we? I, I do get this question you, a lot. You do, mm -hmm. yep. This will be interesting, okay. Yeah, so the article started off by saying, you know, if you have cash remaining after covering your monthly expenses, how should you use it? Do you pay down nagging debts or pour all the money into your retirement savings? There's no perfect answer as it is largely a personal decision. And that's so true. It is, never, it is, it is. It's never the same answer for everybody. And some important information when making a decision like this is you need to know your total debt, um, interest rates, types of retirement plans available to you, time horizon, and I think the most important one personally is your emotional relationship with money. And I think the way that you said that there is so important, the emotional relationship with money. Mm -hmm. That's important. Yeah, because I mean, finance, you know, it's all a numbers game for the most part. But I think this is one area where emotion is important because everybody has them and it really does affect your decisions with paying off debt. And where this also comes into play, and we've talked about this in the past, is, you know, how much money should I have in my savings account? How much should I invest? Mm -hmm. And Taylor, you know this. That tends to be an emotional-based decision. It is. Right? Mm -hmm. yep. All right. 
So they gave us three different situations where paying debt off first may be the best choice rather than saving for retirement. Okay. So the first situation is if you have a lot of high interest rate debt, especially credit card debt. Okay. So the article states that if your debt interest rates play a critical role in how you manage your money, um, if you have student loans at a fairly low interest rate, taking longer to pay them off is not going to hurt your bottom line very much. And I do agree with that 100%. Yep. The Securities and Exchange Commission points out that no investment strategy pays off as well as or with less risk than eliminating high interest rate debt. In other words, you are unlikely to beat those double digit rates of returns with the 401k. And I absolutely agree with the SEC on that. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, the second situation where paying off debt first may be the best choice is if you're able to pay all of your debt off in two years or less. Okay. So if you have a plan to pay off all your debt within about two years or so, chances are putting off serious retirement savings until you do so won't have a significant impact on the amount available in your retirement fund when you finish working. Mm -hmm. Which is true. In the grand scheme of things, two years or even one year of not saving for retirement won't hurt, like the article said, your bottom line as much if you have a substantial amount of debt. Correct. And if you don't add to your, if you don't take out new debt, it's going to free up that cash flow that then can go towards savings. Exactly. Right? You'd be able to save a lot more if it's only going to take you a year or two to knock out. Yep. Well said. Um, and then the last situation um, where paying off debt first may be the best choice and this brings that emotion back into it, yep. is if you personally feel you want to prioritize being debt-free. If debt is overwhelming, that's a good reason for paying off debt before shifting to focus on retirement accounts. It still depends on the total and type of debt, interest rates, and your time horizon, but when your debt is causing you undue stress, paying that off more rapidly can free you to focus on other goals more effectively. Yeah, that's very well said. And it's interesting how, you know, you and I come across different individuals in our line of work where, you know, emotionally people, you know, are either okay carrying debt or others are like, I got to extinguish this right away. Mm -hmm. Taylor, help me effectively do this. Right? right. It's interesting how those different personalities come into play and how number three, the prioritizing of being debt free. We see that at times. We do. Um, and, you know, like I said, it, it's a numbers game. So even though saving for retirement may leave you with more more money in the very end, um, I've even heard you say in meetings before, if this is causing you too much stress, just go ahead and focus on the debt because your mental health is more important. Absolutely. When your head hits a pillow at night, you know, if, if that debt is, is, is causing you undue stress or your amount of liquid savings is not where you want it to be, then that needs to be the top priority. I agree 100%. Yeah. Um, so the article also gives three situations for um, when saving for retirement may be the best choice opposed to paying off debt. Okay, quickly. here we go. This would be good. 
Um, so the first one is if your employer matches any retirement plan contributions. So a 401k, for example. And this is very important. You know, listeners and viewers, pay attention to this at the beginning of the year because what Taylor's about to mention is vital. You want to make sure you get mm -hmm. the free money. Yep. Yep. So the article says that uh, most financial advisors will tell you that regardless of how much debt you may have, you should not miss out on a 401k match. Robert Johnson, a chartered financial analyst and professor at Creighton University, equates not participating in a company 401k match to turning down free money. I didn't know you were going to say that. Oh, you didn't? No, I didn't. <laughs> That's so funny. Word for word. <laughs> but it is like turning down free money. It you is. Know? It is. I mean, at the end of the day, when someone says to me, hey, Matt, how much should I be contributing to my uh, company retirement plan and how much should I be saving personally? Because for a lot of investors, they like the investment flexibility of their personal accounts where they can do anything. Mm -hmm. And typically, and, and Taylor, you know this, is in the employer-sponsored plans, you have these list of funds. And my usual standard reply is, at a very minimum, you put in the minimum amount to get the full match. Mm -hmm. That is the first thing that you do. Yeah, and if you, you could even, I'm sure, look up a 401k calculator online and plug in all the factors and see the difference with a match versus without a match. Huge. The difference would be substantial. Huge, mm -hmm. huge. I agree, first of all, with number one, <laughs> You got you to put at least the minimum in to maximize mm -hmm. the match. I agree with that. Um, and then the second situation where saving for retirement may be the best choice is um, your debt is mainly low interest. So when creditors are charging low interest rates, focusing on investing towards retirement might be the better option. Of course, you should continue to pay the minimums, but if your loans have reasonable rates, the return on your investments are likely to exceed the additional interest charges incurred on that debt. Agree. Mm -hmm. And then the third situation, which we kind of touched on a little earlier, was if you need more than two years to fully pay off debt. Okay. It might be best to, to do a little bit of both. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so if you can't pay off debt in two years or less, it may be preferable to start and continue saving for retirement. The problem is that the longer your debt payoff takes, the more you cut into your potential for retirement savings to grow. Yeah, yeah. One of the cornerstones of investing for retirement is time. And the younger you are when you begin saving in retirement accounts, the longer your savings can make favorable returns. That is so true. Delaying retirement contributions too long means you will have to play catch up. So more than two years for debt repayment is not a good idea. Well said though. I mean, again, I'll say it one more time. One of the cornerstones of investing for retirement is time. Mm -hmm. It really is. And you think about earlier in the podcast when Mark was talking about, you know, how poor 2022 was. And if you just kind of look for a lot of younger individuals, and I think he summarized, you know, early 50s and, and younger, you know, 2022 is an opportunity in disguise. Mm -hmm. It really is. Mm -hmm. So if you're active and watching your allocation and, and actively saving, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, even though 2022 was a hard year, 
down the line, it could really pay off when we see the market. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anything else, Taylor? Um, nope, that was everything that I had. Just okay. thought it was a interesting article that I wanted to share today. All right, perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, I will leave listeners with, uh, we get the jobs report uh, tomorrow on January 6th. Uh, that'll be watched, but I think more importantly, next Thursday, we get the um, Consumer Price Index inflation data, Taylor, and I think the market's going to be watching that. We've had, uh, so far, two consecutive months where that inflation data has surprised to the downside, meaning inflation has come in um, a little quicker than the market has anticipated. So I think the market will be definitely eyeing that data uh, next Thursday morning. So we'll mm -hmm. see how it reacts. So uh, thank you for tuning in to episode number 183 of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us and myself, Taylor and Mark. We will see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.